Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Ryan Bell's Fulbright to Kazakhstan paid off. We'll hear amazing tales about how Kazakhstan and Russia have rebuilt their agriculture industries after the fall of the Soviet Union. An hour from now, we'll carry live coverage of President Trump's announcement on the Iran nuclear deal. The president is expected to pull the U.S. out. We'll consider the implications of a U.S. reversal. Don't forget the U.S. Uh, don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The largest education exchange program in U.S. history was created after World War II with the Fulbright Program. One of the recent beneficiaries of these international public exchanges is journalist Ryan Bell. He's a Fulbright National Geographic fellow that traveled through Russia and Kazakhstan, reporting on how these countries are rebuilding their agriculture industries. It is great to meet you, Ryan Bell. Thanks for having me. Explain how you got interested in journalism. You were in the ranching and outfitting business before journalism. You've got a cowboy hat and cowboy boots on, the vest, the whole bit. You are still um, a cowboy. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of a cultural affiliation more than anything. But yeah, I got started in agriculture after college. I grew up in the city. Um, my parents are kind of that generation that moved from the country into the city. And so I grew up in Colorado Springs and then decided to go to CU Boulder and kind of thereabouts after I had a chance to work on a ranch in Argentina. Kind of a strange connection, but that's where I landed. It's just supposed to be a summer gig. Uh, I was kind of a horse-crazy person. Uh, I met the foreman's daughter, and three months turned into about three years, turned into six years. <laughs> I mean, with the Russia and Kazakhstan connection, you had an experience where you were dealing with a bunch of cattle that were going to Russia and Kazakhstan. Yeah, this was uh, kind of where the journalism thing really got going and my connection with Fulbright. So in 2010, I was already working as a journalist by then, specialized in looking at topics about ranching. And I caught wind about this really strange cultural exchange between the United States and Russia. Uh, it was a government program on the Russian side where they were pairing farmers, uh, Russian farmers, with American ranchers and cowboys. And the aim was to bring over uh, livestock, breeding livestock, to rebuild the cattle industry in Russia, which just completely collapsed after the Soviet Union. The population of cattle like halved over the time of 20 years. And so they were importing billions of dollars a year in meat, no joke. So we're a bunch of cowboys going over to Russia to teach local villagers how to cowboy and to start ranches on what used to be collective farms. I heard that and I said, I am in. Sign me up. <laughs> so I went as a paid cowboy and uh, kind of did some reporting on it along the way. Did it look like they were going to make a go of it when you were there? They had the land to do it. They had the land. They had the grass. They had the water. They had the funding coming from the government. It seemed like they should be able to do it. And that was kind of my question is, did they do it? Did they pull it off? I needed to go back to find out. And so you uh, finagled this Fulbright uh, National Geographic Fellowship. 
Yeah, I was looking for a funding mechanism. How do I get back? Because I don't want to go back as a paid cowboy. Uh, I want to go back and, and do some true journalism on this. So I heard from a friend who'd done a Fulbright. Always that term sounded intimidating to me. Uh, it just seemed like something I, I couldn't do. Like I wasn't smart enough to do it. I wasn't an Ivy Leaguer. And it was just such a misconception about this program. It's something that any college graduate can go do. So I applied and I saw there was this one program specifically for journalists uh, where you're partnered with National Geographic and you do a reporting project for nine months to country of your choice and your research topic of your choice. And so they funded me to go back to Russia and I added on Kazakhstan because it kind of had some similar things going on. There are also some American cowboys there doing the same thing. And I went, reported about it for National Geographic for the better part of a year, year and a half. I got to admit, a lot of people, when they hear of Kazakhstan, all they think of is Borat, and Borat used Kazakhstan because it has, like, no reputation to most people. But it looks like cowboy country, if, if from your pictures, from the, the horses, the people, you know, gorgeous plains, and horses seem to have been a part of their life forever. Yeah, and truth be told, it's kind of the wellspring of where cowboys came from. Well, over 5,000 years ago, the oldest known remains of a domesticated horse were found in Kazakhstan, carbon hmm. data back 5,000 years. So as far as we know, horses were domesticated on the Kazakh steppes, uh, gave rise to nomadism, gave rise to livestock handling, uh, the technology of the saddle, the stirrup, so many of the trappings we think of as classically cowboy, they were born there. They were born there and they drifted west and took shape to what we see as today. What's their horse life like today? There's people that live and die by the horse there and eat the horse. That's uh, one of the strange directions the reporting took me was trying to understand a culture that very much has the spirit of the cowboy and the love of a horse and the love of the land and the love of grass and, and everything we think of as classically cowboy and the independence and they love to eat horse meat. That was a hard thought to get my head wrapped around. And also you have no choice but to eat horse meat while you're there. Now, in Kazakhstan, they have large amounts of herding horses. Is that what's going on? And so they're farming the herding, herding animals. And in essence, why aren't we doing that? We've got, we got large amounts of horses and herds and, you know, we eat all these other herding animals. Yeah, I think that's a fair question to ask. The thing in Kazakhstan is that they have breeds of horses specific for meat. You know, these aren't just any type of horse. They grow a really nice amount of fat layering. Their meat has specifically been bred in order to be a meat-producing right. animal. They're not raised and bred for riding. They don't even ride that great. Uh, they don't even try to tame them. They just herd them as if they're cattle. So there is no pet relationship. There's no privilege relationship of domestication with those horses. Um, that said, they'll also eat the horse that they ride. They just don't distinguish between the two. And here in the U.S., the automobile took over the job of horses. And ever since then, horses hold a different place in the U.S. And it's created a bit of a, I don't know, it's a sticky wicket. Did we used to eat them? Very recently. Uh, as recently as just shortly after World War II. And now we're all hysterical if there's horse meat in, in, in our dog food and stuff. <laughs> we are. We are. Now there's some health issues at play because a horse that you ride for fun – you give a lot of veterinary treatments too. You give it medicines and things that go into the bloodstream that makes that meat unsafe. So that horse needs to kind of go through a quarantine period if you were to eat it in order for it to be safe. So it's not like all of these uh, U.S. horses we have, you could just turn around and eat them anyways. You would have to go through a fairly lengthy quarantining process. That said, 
we send, gosh, over 100,000 horses a year to slaughter. We just don't slaughter them in the U.S. It's more or less illegal here. They're now shipped to Mexico and Canada where the slaughtering is done and then the meat is exported, uh, most of it to the EU and then also to Japan. I'm talking with journalist Ryan Bell. We're talking about his travels through Kazakhstan and Russia. He was a Fulbright National Geographic fellow. It's a real cultural uh, difference. We've really just changed how we approach the animals. You've also been writing about the wild horses in the U.S. and how their numbers are expanding and they're damaging uh, some of the ecosystems out there. Yeah, the thing about a horse is that they're very effective procreators. I think it's somewhere between 15 and 20 percent procreative ability. So 100 horses turns into, let's just say, 120 in a year. When you take the population of, let's just say, wild horses on public lands, that population grows really fast. We've taken away all the predators. Anything that would hunt these horses in the wild, let's say wolves, let's say mountain lions, uh, they're not there. There's not any check and balance. Nature's out of balance there. Um, add to that, horses compete for grazing land with public lands ranchers. Uh, that's a real point of conflict. Who should be grazing this grass? How should we use who deserves the place on this grass? And there's Westerners who've been making their life on public lands for 100 years or so on that grass. And so these horses, as they expand, they infringe on land that is not private, but it has a grazing permit to it. And so there's livelihoods at stake. And so it's just really kind of a difficult choice to make. What do you do? When the horses get too many, they round them up. Once the population goes over 30,000 horses on public land, the surplus gets rounded up and put into a corral. We've got, I think, something like 75,000 wild horses just standing in corrals. And there's an adoption program that people have tried to get started on this? Yeah. It's a neat initiative. I adopted a horse once and trained it up. These uh, We colloquially call them BLM Mustangs, BLM being the Bureau of Land Management. <laughs> and that's the organization that oversees these horses. So you get them for free, I guess? Or More or less. You do have to pay. Uh, it's like uh, I think no. my horse costs 200 bucks. I adopted mine through the prison system. There's a really neat work rehabilitation program in the prisons where really great horse trainers work for the prison system and they teach inmates how to train Mustangs. And by doing that, you've got to have your cool. You can't have too many anger management issues when you're working a Mustang because he'll just knock you on your keister. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so you have, you have inmates who've earned the right and the privilege to be able to learn how to train Mustangs. Um, and they put 30 days of training on them, soften them. We say green break. Uh, you green break the horse. They can lead by halter. They'll wear a saddle. They still need a lot of riding. So I adopted one of those. He had 30 days of riding. Uh, I named him Crow because he was black. And uh, I rode him for almost three years through the mountains. But this didn't prove popular. I mean, this can't really offset the enormous amount of horses that are breeding. It sounds like a drop in the bucket. It's a drip in the bucket. And that's the problem. And because it's affordable, it's very cheap to adopt one of these horses, you have people who are just testing the waters of horse ownership and therefore not really qualified to be adopting such a challenging horse. And so we get these really upside-down adoptions. And the horses kind of become, I don't know, like the horse trainers say, they become horses with a people problem. It sounds like Kazakhstan has a better nature-horse balance than we do. Where Ours has gotten so complicated, it's out of whack. If we're talking simply in terms of a protein, an animal protein, horse meat off of open-range grass 
it's on par with like eating venison or elk. We're just talking about a large grazing animal with really healthy meat in it. So you got to eat some in Kazakhstan? Oh, gosh, every day. You can't get away from it. <laughs> and you did a story about uh, whether their Olympic boxers were more powerful because they eat so much horse meat? Yeah. You know, one boxer has said, I punch as hard as a horse kicks because I've eaten horse meat. Uh, they also drink horse milk. I'm not joking. They're horse crazy. And so <laughs> all of this from a very young age, they're getting this high nutrient meat, and they seem to think that it's very much like absorbing the spirit of a horse. And they're great boxers. We're just coming up yeah. on the new bout with Gennady Golovkin. Uh, he's he's uh, that's going to be the big boxing match. He's here it comes. Wait, who's he? He's a Kazakh boxer. He's considered, if not these, number one or two best boxer in the world. Oh no, kidding! I mean, I know they win the Olympics all the time. All the time. All the time. I helped as a field producer, kind of a fixer for a, a vice produced documentary about horse meat and boxers. Uh, and the whole thing was how the boxing team in Kazakhstan eats horse meat, uh, and it's part of their diet. And the documentary kind of ran previous to the Olympics, and they followed a boxer who then went into the ring and was in the gold medal bout. And I won't spoil it, but check it out. It's a pretty great short doc. All right, and that's up on the Vice website. You actually find that through the International Olympic Committee because it was done for them. Oh, good. I'm talking with Ryan Bell. He's a journalist and a Fulbright National Geographic fellow that traveled through Russia and Kazakhstan. And we're talking about some of his reporting on the agricultural industries there. As long as we're wandering around horses and cowboy culture, I noticed some of your stories, you've done a bunch of stories on the Buffalo soldiers, the African-American soldiers who were involved in cattle drives uh, in the old days from up around Texas and Oklahoma and all that. And there's a group of them today, and you've gotten to hang out with them and do stuff with them. Yeah. After coming home from Russian Kazakhstan, my family had moved to Seattle periodically. I was a cowboy in Seattle, and I was feeling pretty out of place. And we went to this parade in downtown. I was just a suburb of Seattle. And here comes this column of African-American men were on horseback, dressed in what looked like cavalry uniforms. I'm standing there kind of like a vacation day, so I'm in flip-flops and shorts. But I just couldn't resist. I went running out into the middle of the parade, and, and I asked one of the gentlemen to stop. And I said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I'm a cowboy too. And I just – I really would like to meet you guys. So it took about another year, year and a bit later, we reconnected and come to find out that this group of men, men and youth in Seattle, they don't call themselves reenactors. Um, but they're taking charge of a historical renaissance about the connection between African-Americans and their contribution on the American frontier, which I've now learned was deep and robust. We're right now on the 150th anniversary of all the cattle drives that came up from Texas up to Oklahoma, up to Montana, you know, Lonesome Dove. We've all seen Lonesome right. Dove. And something that has been not given the credit, it should be due is the role African-Americans played in all of those cattle drives. One out of four cowboys on the trail were black. One out of four. One out of four. And add to that the number of farmers and even ranchers and cowboys. We have events in rodeo. One event called bulldogging was invented by a black cowboy, Bill Pickett. And so when I started looking into this and starting thinking about my connection to this culture, which you know, I think Clint Eastwood, I don't think John Wayne because I don't think he's the best representation of cowboy, uh, but certainly the characters in Lonesome Dove and then to realize 
there is as much place for African-Americans in all this. And so that came as much news to me as it comes to some people in the African-American community. And these men in Seattle are taking charge of giving credit where that credit is due. And on top of that, doing a – they call it a cadet camp where they take students from the city schools uh, and they take them out to their farm. It's a black-owned farm in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains and they teach them to ride horses and they teach them marksmanship and they teach them survival skills and all the while talking about the legacy of African-Americans in the West. I guess it makes perfect sense. I mean, in a post-slavery situation, what would be a really good thing to do if you were an African-American male? And being a Buffalo soldier would be a pretty good thing to do. African-Americans straight out of slavery were highly trained agriculturalists, highly, highly trained. And the Civil War created a depletion in white workers, which opened up an opportunity in ranching for black cowboys to move in as free men. And now the Buffalo Soldier part of it is black regiments in the U.S. Army. That's where the name comes from is that they are in fact soldiers. And it's kind of unclear where the name really came from. But the popular story is that black cavalry soldiers were used in the Indian Wars. You know, there's a bittersweet part of that history that the black regiments were sent to fight in the Indian Wars. Uh, But in skirmishes with the natives in the south, apparently one of the sayings was, who are these black soldiers? They have dark skin and they wear buffalo robes. These are buffalo soldiers. They fight with the ferocity of a buffalo. And so that name stuck. Now, the black regiments were intact all the way through. They were decommissioned in the 1950s, only in the 1950s when desegregation occurred in the military. But there's still buffalo soldiers alive today, among them in Seattle. But their legacy is alive and well and being remembered and given the credit that it's due. That's really interesting. Where can people learn more about Buffalo Soldiers? That story is only in print. I've got my eyes on putting that one in a bigger (laughs) place. (laughs) So stay tuned. This ranch that you visited, what's it like? It's cool. So it's an old dairy farm. And the dairy farmer had kind of shut down. The dairy stalls were kind of in bad disrepair and put it up for sale. The individuals that bought it, one of them is from a farming family in, in Louisiana. And so he comes from farming stock. And he's a very fine horseman. Uh, And so they bought it and they started raising a breed of horse called Frisians, an all-black horse with really long flowy manes, has feathered legs, incredibly long tail, just really good-looking horse, perfect for parade uh, because they have really great demeanors and they really catch your eye. And so now today, the farm raises these Frisian horses. They also do trail rides. They do, you know, they do everything you need to do as an agriculturalist to keep your farm up and running. And then just as a passion, they host these biweekly cadet camps. And then all the Buffalo soldiers who are the grown men who go on parade, they get down there every week, smoke cigars, ride horses, you know, tell stories, just celebrate. That's awesome. They've reconnected with the culture. It's an ember that they've kept alive. Ryan Bell is a Fulbright National Geographic fellow, and he traveled through Russia and Kazakhstan reporting on how those countries rebuilt their agriculture industries. We'll be back with more after the break, and then we'll talk about President Trump's announcement on the Iran nuclear deal. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Ryan Bell. He's a journalist and Fulbright National Geographic fellow. We're talking about his travels through Russia and Kazakhstan, and we're talking about some of his reporting on the agricultural industries there. I wanted to swing over to apples because another thing people may not know about Kazakhstan was it's some sort of apple pilgrimage place. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's. I'm not sure what, what to even say. Um, there's this really cool idea that I read. I think Jared Diamond wrote about it in Guns, Germs, and Steel. This idea that in the post-Columbian world, trade between continents has served to more or less kind of stitch back together Pangaea. This idea that trading back food and everything has brought the continents, the organisms of the continents, back in touch with each other. So the apple kind of runs wild. There are wild apple forests, entire forests of apple trees. Imagine that in the springtime. Yeah. Gorgeous, fragrant, just covered in white flower petals all over. And they're incredibly hardy, hardy plants. Now, the fruit's not that delicious, but what you have are rootstocks that are impenetrable to diseases, impenetrable to climate shifts, very hardy to cold weather, too much wet, too much dry, they can handle it. Really great rootstock. So um, apple orchardists uh, have kind of embraced this idea of, especially experimental apple orchardists, they bring over the rootstock and then they graft on our favorite apples onto rootstock that comes from back in the Kazakh area. Uh, and it makes for a tree that can withstand swings of climate change and uh, still bear the fruit that we like and the fruit that we eat. And so in Kazakhstan, they use these trees themselves in crossbreeding things to make their own kind of version of apple that tastes better? They have done that. They have done that. These forests sit right on the edge of the old Silk Road. Apples were among some of the first agricultural products to travel down the Silk Road. Some think that the Silk Road was not created for the purpose of trading silk, but for trading agricultural products. I've spoken with archaeologists who have found evidence of grains traveling down the Silk Road before we know silk was being traded. So this was an agricultural corridor. Now, the apple growing in that area, as it became domesticated, apples change really quickly when they crossbreed. And then they crossbreed again. They hybridize. They hybridize. And so the, the actual apple you're eating changes all the time. So what you end up having is when you get a tree that makes a really great fruit, you graft the heck out of that tree. You pull off the twigs and graft it onto other trees so that you're growing that very same apple again. In many ways, it's kind of like nature's way. Cloning. It's a cloning process. It is. It's not a laboratory cloning process, but it is a cloning process. It's a replication. So once you have a nice apple, you zero in on it and you reproduce it. And so Kazakhstan is famous for having created one and maybe even two varieties that are pretty popular. One's called the Seversi uh, apple, and then the other is the Aport. And the Aport is the apple that anybody who grew up in the Soviet Union knows this apple. It's the apple that was sold in markets all across the Soviet Union. And it was born right there in the, in the wilds of, of the Kazakh steppes. Well, more in the mountains. So do they end up eating more imported apples now? Did the imported market take over? No, they're very proud of eating their own apples. You eat a lot of horse and you eat a lot of apples. <laughs> and now that I think about it, horses love to eat apples. I never yeah, drew that do. connection. <laughs> maybe, you know, maybe the wild horses back in the day used to roam through the wild apple tree forests eating apples. It all started in Kazakhstan. <laughs> it's surprising how many times I get that lesson in a lot of this research. 
talking with Ryan Bell. He's a journalist and a Fulbright National Geographic fellow that traveled through Russia and Kazakhstan. And we're talking about some of his reporting on the agricultural industries there. You mentioned earlier about the uh, Fulbright program and how you didn't think it was something that was for you. But it sounds like the Fulbright program, I mean, it's been going pretty good since the end of World War II. What's the state of health with it right now? Are there enough people applying? Are they getting enough interest? Is there money for it? It has a ton of interest. Uh, I think I heard a statistic that we put more Fulbrighters than ever in the field last year. And something to think about, it was born after World War II. And I'm a history major. And so I love to really kind of bring in my mind, uh, bring alive an era of history. And not until being a Fulbrighter did I realize that out of World War II, the world wasn't talking to each other. Yeah, We had just torn each other apart and we'd built walls and turned our backs on each other, dominated each other, mass murdered each other. Nobody was talking to each other. And Senator Fulbright from Arkansas came up with this idea of a scholar exchange program thinking, how do we start again? How do we plant the seeds of diplomacy for the future? And he thought, let's do this through scholarship. Basically, let's just trade college kids. And it's paid off in some of the most surprising ways. We had Vietnamese Fulbrighters coming to the United States almost right after the Vietnamese War, when we had no diplomatic relations with Vietnam. Years later, when we opened up an embassy in Vietnam, we were dealing with those same Fulbrighters. The bridge of connectivity had been made thanks to scholarship and people-to-people diplomacy. And here I am, an American cowboy as a Fulbrighter in Russia. I mean, can you get uh, – <laughs> that just plays with so many stereotypes. It, it almost seems like it shouldn't happen. In fact, it's been the premise of a dime Western novel. It's called The Cowboy and the Cossack. Like we have thought of this funny idea before. What if the Russians and the cowboys got together? That's exactly what happened. That is proof that people-to-people diplomacy can move this world forward. We have to have it. It's how we grow food. It's how we take care of each other. It's how we watch guard over our shared environment. Our leaders may be a bunch of ding-dongs that can't get along. Somebody has to keep moving us forward. How is funding for the Fulbright program going? Last year, it was threatened to be cut. Um, We did a march on the Hill. I went and uh, we lobbied several congressmen and senators. And everyone I talked to on both sides, there is a strong understanding that this is something both sides of the aisle get along on. We get it. It's not a hard sell. So we got full funding last year. Um, This year, I understand, again, it's threatened to be cut or more eviscerated. I've heard it's somewhere in the range of having the budget cut by like 70%, which would just cut the Achilles heel of the program. The program relies on funding from both the United States and the countries we partner with. We partner with somewhere around 150 other countries that host our students and send their students here. We spend a dollar to host their student. They spend a dollar to host our student. Well, if we got our funding down to 30 cents on that same student, what are they going to do? Same. The same. And that's going to stop the pipeline of our students and scholars going abroad um, and vice versa coming this way. Sounds like a bad deal. Your career is, speaks to the success of the program. I mean, this wasn't this was something that really boosted your career, really locked you in as a journalist, and you you made a contribution. Yeah, I feel like in many ways it's almost like a job training program. There, 
in my case, it was kind of a sweetheart deal because it took me from writing for a cowboy magazine where I was writing beforehand. I leapt from that to nationalgeographic.com. That was pretty sweet. That owes to the uniqueness of a, of a very specific program inside of the Fulbright. But for other people as well, it's a career leap, absolute career leap. And even for those who do something as simple as just going and teaching English in another university, the doors it opens for them, the adversity it forces them to overcome, the uncomfortable situations they have to learn to navigate just creates really solid world citizens, workers, whatever you want to say. It accomplishes it. Uh, and it also brings Americans side by side with peoples in other countries. It allows us to make some informed decisions on pretty much any topic we need to. Ryan Bell, it's been a pleasure talking with you. People can check out the work that you do on your website. You have ryantbell.com. <laughs> Thanks a lot for joining us. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been nice. President Trump is expected to defy the U.S.'s European allies and pull out of the Iran nuclear deal at the top of the hour. We'll discuss the decision after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. At the top of the hour, we'll carry live coverage of President Trump's announcement on the Iran nuclear deal. The president's expected to pull the U.S. out. We're going to consider the implications of the U.S. reversal now with Ahmad Sadri, professor of Islamic world studies and sociology at Lake Forest College. Good to talk with you again, Ahmad. Happy to be here again. What about the strategy here on this decision? All the European allies of the U.S. are against it. Um, obviously, Russia and China, the co-signatories to the deal, are against it. Uh, the people who are for it are Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the U.S. seems ready to throw in its lot with them. Well, it is a dilemma. I think it's, it's no... Um mystery why Mr. Trump is against it, because it was a deal concluded by uh, Mr. Obama. And also being anti-Iran is a kind of a default knee-jerk reaction among, uh, it's bipartisan, both Republicans and, and Democrats. Nobody ever lost the vote or incurred any political price for being tough on Iran. And the same goes on the other side of the uh, lake. You also have in Iran this kind of cheap anti-Americanism uh, that has been just a tired claptrap of the Islamic Republic. The amazing thing that happened with the nuclear deal was the breaking of that logjam that the politicians on both sides were bold enough to go against that uh, inertia and conclude this deal. Now, it looks like we're back to 
the incriminations and and political posturing on both sides and because of the expressions of Mr. Trump uh, since he took office and what he's probably going to announce today, the positions have really hardened on the other side. And uh, do you think that um, the United States can have any further impact on Iran? Can the can Donald Trump insist that the missiles get thrown in and the Europeans will have to go back in there and, and start working with the Iranians on the missiles? And, and voila, we've got a better deal. There is no chance of that. The missiles is part of the Iranian conventional uh, military capability. And Iranians uh, who have suffered because they didn't have the, that technology in the Iran-Iraq war consider that to be existential. They are not going to negotiate about that as a kind of addendum to the nuclear deal or in order to keep the nuclear deal. And uh, so there is no chance of that. And that was never intentionally. These negotiations were very narrow. They were not like a dragnet dealing with everything. Iranians did try to have that kind of negotiation with Americans in 2003, and the Bush administration rejected that. This was very narrow and only about nuclear deal. Iranians gave and the Americans compromised, and on both sides they reached a mutually acceptable uh, treaty between these uh, five plus one uh, powers and Iran. There is no chance, there is no political uh, figure in Iran to be able to give an inch without that being considered to be treason. So it, is, it would be political suicide on behalf of anyone, including the reformists in Iran, to try to kind of renegotiate this and give some more, throw some more uh, subs to the, to the Americans and to the powers on the other side. So this is a non-starter. Can the Iranians stick to the deal with the remaining parties in the agreement and pretty much get a lot out of the deal still? Is it, can they still make a win out of it for themselves and just to cut the U.S. loose? It would make sense, actually, that this might happen if the American Congress does not impose additional sanctions. There is a chance that Iranians might do that. But even that will be seen by the right wing, by the extremists in Iran, by the hawks, as weakness. And they're already saying the Americans' plan is for them to withdraw and keep Iran obligated to its, uh, to its uh, uh, obligations under this treaty. And that would be a defeatist position to take. If they pull out, we should pull out. So it is possible that if the sanctions don't follow uh, the actions that probably Trump is going to take today, that Iranians would remain in it. But even that position would be costly to the Rouhani government. Are there, there are some big talking politicians in Iran who want to go right back and start the nuclear program up. Uh, I saw one quoted in the paper. He said, uh, we will break the cement at Arak. We will open the heart of the nuclear plant. Uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran will start its nuclear activities again more powerfully than before, which will be a loss for America and its allies. And so there are guys who want to do it. Indeed, and, and, and they will. 
actually, if if this is broken and if Iran is under sanctions again, they have nothing to lose. And uh, they would be basically risking their national pride and sovereignty if they didn't go back to doing it. And that would be very tragic for the region and for the world where we have agreed to a kind of pullback from the brink of some nuclear threshold and then uh, we ruin it and allow the Andres to take off in a crazy trot again. If Iran were to restart its program, it's almost seems like the Secretary of State these days, Mike Pompeo, and the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, they would love to go in there and root that out with some military action. I think the war party in the United States is comparable to uh, the war party that, that started the Iraq war, the neocons. What they wanted was a war with Iraq, a conquest of Iraq. What they really did not... Uh, consider was the American national interest. It was an ideological goal. And for the war party, the likes of Bolton and Pompeo, uh, they want a war with Iran for their ideological reasons. The cost of of that war for the American military, for the American people, they consider that to be secondary. So uh, I think that that's their plan. They want to pull out and provoke Iran to start the nuclear uh, activities and then use that as an excuse to start military action against Iran. And somehow they get there what they want, which is a war with Iran. What about the U.S. allies in the region, the Israel and Saudi Arabia? Uh, the Israeli prime minister had this unusual uh, public display the other day where he talked about Iran having lied 10 years before the deal was cut, and, which a lot of people looked at and said, well, that's the reason why we cut the deal is <laughs> because of the things you're talking about. Um, now you want to tear it up. And uh, this is uh, – what do these guys get out of this? Well, these are two strange bedfellows, Saudi Arabia and Israel under Likud and Saudi Arabia until under Mohammed bin Salman. And they each have their own ideas. And uh, the Isra- for the Israelis, for the Likud, Iran has risen to the top of their enemy list because the rest of the top candidates are knocked out. You know, there's no more Egypt, Jordan, Iraq. And almost now, no, no, no Syria, no, no Libya. Of course, their next enemy would have to be Iran. And so, uh, again, a war with Iran would be a boon for for Israelis and for Saudis if they don't have to do anything, if they don't have to risk any blood and and any uh, military expenditures and any international risk, they would love for the Americans to knock down Iran or at least knock it down a few notches. For the Saudis, uh, they are worried because Iran has become powerful. The reason is Iran became powerful is that the United States attacked and destroyed its enemies to the east and to the west, Afghanistan and and Iraq, and now, ironically, the Iraqi government that was at the enemy of Iran is very closely allied with Iran. So Saudis can't countenance this. And in order to restore what they thought was ideal, which is the double containment policy of the United States, either they would have to strengthen again Afghanistan and Iraq, which is impossible, or to attack Iran and weaken Iran. So this is their 
the, the reasoning. And uh, obviously, if the if war breaks out, uh, this will be a disaster for the for the region. But it will serve the narrow ideological interest of the administration uh, that is in power in Israel and the uh, interest of that Saudi prince that was just mentioned. One of the things that's interesting here is Iran, if it were to get a nuclear weapon here, um, the Saudis would get a nuclear weapon. And this would uh, this would not help Iran a whole lot. This would make the Saudis stronger than they technically are. Uh, it would make them a peer when, when they're not a peer. So Iran has reasons to not want this thing, this kind of scenario to, to start rolling. I agree. That is my reasoning that Iran never wanted a nuclear weapon. What Iran wanted wanted uh, what Iran wanted was to get to the stage of latency. That is the, new, the, the stage in which you, you find South Korea or Japan or Brazil, many of these countries who can put together a nuclear weapon should they want to, but they don't. So that would be enough for Iran. Iran never wanted to have an actual nuclear weapon because that would wipe out the conventional superiority of the Iranian army over the rest of these armies. And so, uh, yeah, I, for that reason, Iran really does not want a nuclear weapon. But again, if this agreement goes south, unfortunately, Iran kind of will find itself in a position to basically be forced to, to go to weaponize its nuclear technology. I'm talking with Ahmed Sadre from Lake Forest College about the Iran nuclear deal. President Trump is expected to reverse the U.S. position on the Iran nuclear deal at the top of the hour. We will have live coverage. One of the things that's interesting here um, that was revealed in The Guardian and The New Yorker uh, over the weekend was that there appears to be uh, some sort of dirty operation on the Iran nuclear deal and, and the, the Trump administration or someone allied with them seems to have been trying to smear members of the Barack Obama administration, um, Ben Rhodes, uh, another colleague, Colin Call, seem to have been, uh, they, they were looking for dirt on these guys. And this was uh, some sort of Israeli firm, some sort of Israeli black ops firm. Uh, what do you make of this weird piece of skullduggery that came out? I don't know what to make of it, but I'll tell you what really surprised me was that it really did not make a blip. It's like people are saying, la-di-da, it is Trump time, and stuff like that happens. And so our, the ground has shifted so much, and, and what would have been completely weird has been normalized to this extent that even this kind of scandal breaks and nobody budges. So in a way, we are really in, in a new uh, kind of Alice in Wonderland political landscape that stuff like that can happen and people consider it to be normal. Uh, I want to talk about some of the economics of breaking the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, there's people who are worried about gas prices at the pump. There are great big plane contracts from Boeing and Airbus that are at play. There's a mess of stuff that could... Uh, look bad here for people. Indeed, we are already witnessing the uh, effects, in the ripple effects in the gas prices, and uh, probably half a million barrels will be taken out of the market 
the and but again this is not 19 this is not 12 to, uh, 2012 the sanctions if they are imposed they are not going to be universal the Europeans will still buy Iranian oil. It is very likely that the Chinese and the Russians will buy Iranian oil. Places like South Korea or Japan may be afraid of American punishment, but I think even uh, some European countries will continue to do business with Iran if the business is big enough for their government to negotiate with Americans so that these companies are not are not punished. So I don't think, whatever economic downturn had to happen has already happened in Iran. The Iranian uh, Toman is is exchanging in a very, very uh, uncompetitive uh, rates against dollar. It went in the last month from 4,500 Tomans per dollar to 4,500 uh, Tomans per dollar to 5,500 Tomans per dollar. It is funny that actually today it, it, it dollar dropped a little bit. It's like people are people are kind of thinking, well, this is going to happen, so maybe some of that panic is going to come off of it. So uh, I think the economic uh, impact on Iran is not going to be that great. What is really worrying is the political uh, saber rattling and and the unintended consequences and uh, and uh, accidental wars that might break out as a result of this kind of uh, rhetoric. In the end, do you understand anything about why Donald Trump wants to rescind this other than, you know, was Barack Obama's uh, deal? Well, it, it, this was a campaign promise and he wanted to look tough on a hated enemy, rally his, uh, uh, his troops against, uh, you know, a shibboleth of, uh, of, uh, of uh, American nationalism. And it looks like, again, it, it's, it's always a cheap shot to be anti-American, anti-Iranian in America and anti-American in Iran. And that was the path of least resistance. And he's going that way. Also, he hated to be in this position of having to ratify it every, every three months. So basically, uh, he's kind of throwing that yoke off. And, uh, and the way this whole thing has worked out was very unforeseen. The Congress really didn't know it's going to have this kind of effect when they were passing that uh, <clears throat> that uh, um, Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. Uh, but it has, because they never expected somebody like Trump would be in, in office. So uh, he, do, he doesn't have to do that if, if he kind of pulls out and throws the ball back into the Congress's yard. Uh, do you think there's any chance that um, he can, uh, you know, jump in here and, and renegotiate any aspect of this thing? Is there any kind of uh, – he seems to think that this is kind of more like a, a real estate deal, that like you, you just kind of redo your real estate deal, redo the thing, and, and you can make it happen. Yeah, again, that is something that he's used to. I think Trump has two models. One is the reality show, like – 
the cliffhanger, I'm not going to tell you what, but I'll, I'll tell you when I tell you. So keeping people kind of in suspense. And the other one is the real estate deal of bait and switch. Like you get people to come, or contractors come and start building your casino. In the middle of it, you say, sorry, I don't have money. We have to renegotiate. And he gets more, some more money out of them. The problem is that the international community doesn't work like that. They, you know, these, these countries with which you, you are negotiating, they are not your subcontractors. Uh, what do you think happens to the U.S. credibility after this? Um, you negotiate this deal, then you pull out. Well, I, I think it's, it's going to be suffering grievously. I think uh, in the future, uh, people who negotiate in the United States, they are going to be very worried about something like this happening. Ahmad Sadri is professor of Islamic World Studies and Sociology at Lake Forest College. Thanks for joining us and talking about Donald Trump and his decision on the Iran nuclear deal. It's coming up next, shortly after the top of the hour, we expect. Hope you can join us tomorrow on Worldview. We'll check in with our friends from Fair Trade Chicago about their Fair Trade Expo that's taking place on the Magnificent Mile. We'll be broadcasting live from there on Friday. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gal Lee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and J. Kyle White-Sullivan for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.